Hello, this is Assigned Scientist at Bachelors, the only science podcast I know about with no cis people allowed. I'm Charles and I'm an entomologist. And I'm Tessa and I'm an astrobiologist. And today we have a guest, uh, Emma Rose Ahmed, I believe is how it's pronounced. Emma Rose is a synthetic organic chemist in the Kang Research Group at UNLV. They're beginning their PhD program in organic chemistry in fall 2021, where they're going to focus their research on phosphorus chemistry and creating novel synthetic methods for historically difficult and low-yielding reactions. And in that biography, we just had a guest spot from my cat, Al. But hopefully he'll be quiet for the rest of it. But Emma Rose won't. Hello, Emma Rose. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. So normally with these podcasts, we begin by asking people sort of how they got started in science, how they got interested in science. I, in high school, wanted to be a forensic pathologist because I thought it was very cool. And that didn't really take off mostly because of the cost of med school. But in high school, I was taking an an AP chemistry course, which I hated uh, until we started talking about orbital hybridization. And then for some reason, orbital hybridization really, it made everything click and I fell in love with chemistry. And so then after that, I majored in chemistry in college. I was going to major in biochem, but then again, I was like, I'm not going to med school. That's too expensive. (laughs) That's all. I love your cat. He's really good. He's just annoyed that I'm not paying attention to him. He doesn't understand podcasts <laughs> or um, most things, really. Frankly, I think in his mind, the only thing that you should be paying attention to is him. And that's a valid point of view. I mean, he's not completely wrong. But were, <laughs> were, were you done answering or did you just get rudely interrupted by my cat? I wasn't. It wasn't rudely interrupted. It was pleasant. Where was I? Oh, yeah. So I did. I majored in chemistry in college. I took an OCHEM class. I hated that. And then I got to OCHEM too. And I was like, actually, I like this very much. I ended up joining a lab that semester. And since then, I basically dream about like organic chemistry. So I guess orbital hybridization is really what kicked that off for me. For the listeners at home who, like me, are chemistry novices, could you explain briefly what orbital hybridization is? <sighs> I would love to. So there are locations around the nucleus where electrons are most likely to be found and they take different shapes. But a lot of the times the shapes that we have calculated for the electron probabilities don't match up what we see experimentally. So the classic example is that methane, which is CH4, has four equal distance bonds. Um, But based off of the orbital calculations that we have, it should have three bonds of equal distance and one bond of a shorter distance. And so the way that we make up for that discrepancy is that we say that uh, the three P orbitals and the one S orbital have hybridized to form SP3 orbitals, four of them. And so that helps explain like the equal bond distances and the bond angles that we find experimentally. Although I've recently learned in my quantum chemistry class that that doesn't actually physically happen, and that's deeply hurtful, but um, it is a good model to explain what we see. Wow. Well, there are two things that I would love to dig into a little bit more from that. So the first thing is, you mentioned what we see experimentally, and I would love to dig into what it actually looks like to study like electron movement in that way. And then secondly, that it doesn't actually happen physically. And I'm not even sure how to phrase a question about that, but imagine just like five question marks in a row. Yeah, that's also how I feel. 
So okay, we'll t- <laughs> we'll tackle the first one. Um, could you please repeat the first question for me? Yeah. So, what does it look like to study like electron movement experimentally? Like, how can you actually know how electrons are moving? There are a lot of methods. Um, I only deal with one of them, so I don't actively watch electron movement in my field. But um, what we do is we use like after we do an experiment or before we do an experiment, we take this big machine called the NMR, which stands for Nuclear Magnetic Resonance. And that tells us the exact structure of a compound. And so based off of our before and after, we can see what's changed. And then there are like other methods that'll let you know what electron movement, like what the electrons are up to down there. Um, There's like, uh, what is it? Atomic force microscopy, which tells you the topography of a molecule. And that gives you a pretty good idea of electron movement. I know that there are methods that you can use to watch reactions happen, but those tend to be really sensitive because the time scale for a lot of machines is a lot slower than the actual reaction itself. But those aren't my field, unfortunately. Well, I just, the the notion of watching electrons is wild to me as a biologist and as an entomologist. Like, to see my study subjects, I just look at them, you know? (laughs) Because my organismal focus now is in Dictyoptera, which is mantises, cockroaches, and termites. And compared to some animals, they're small, but compared to insects in general, all three of those are large to moderate. The other thing I was going to ask is that my understanding is that, at least from being married to someone who's currently taking a class on quantum physics, is that you talk about electrons moving around, but that makes it almost kind of sound like an electron is like a localized point as opposed to being this weird cloud of potentials that's kind of smeared over space. Yeah. <sighs> I love chemistry so much, and sometimes it just makes no sense. But no, that's that's exactly how um, I was also taught to view it, is that the electrons are very delocalized and also not super physical, that a lot of their energy is is a wave and less of a like physical point. We had like literally just talked about viewing electrons as this smeared out charge cloud. It's interesting because in different fields of chemistry, we have to view it differently in order to explain what we're doing. So like in quantum chemistry, we do view the electrons as smeared out charges. But then in organic chemistry, we have to view them as like point charges in order to explain reaction mechanisms and so on. And so I haven't found a way to make those up yet. I would like to combine them and I just don't know how. This is all fascinating to me as a philosophy of uh, biology student and broadly a philosophy of science student, because it's probably the chip on my shoulder as a systematist and taxonomist. I don't, you're probably familiar with the Rutherford quote, everything is either physics or stamp collecting. (laughs) I'm not actually. Well, a lot of taxonomists have been salty about this for decades. (laughs) So it's, it's interesting to me that because chemistry, because physics and chemistry are often presented as like relatively more solidly real. Rigorous. Yeah, rigorous and describing sort of unassailably real phenomena. And so it's interesting that the conception of what an electron is and how it acts would vary so much based not on like a universalized understanding of what it is, but rather disciplinary necessity, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. It is frustrating. 
it is upsetting. I would like a single answer. That's why I'm in the field and I'm not getting it. Oh, dear. I mean, that's life as a scientist, right? It's true. We and don't also know anything. just, you know, a human person, unfortunately. <laughs> no, it's interesting to me also because for a long time I used electron clouds as like a metaphor for gender. How so? Well, in the sense that we tend to think of gender as being a specific fixed point, you're male or you're female, but even within male and female, there are large areas of variance, both in identity and in expression. And then with orbital hybridization, you get these newer, um, you know, things that exist only unto themselves really and you know that's non-binary people that's beautiful actually that's very cute thank you i like that so we talked about studying electrons and now we can pull down the pin that's five question marks in a row mm. of whether orbital hybridization is actually describing a physical reality truly i don't even know that i know enough about it to know how to phrase a question about it Hence the five question marks in the air. <laughs> Sometimes I also feel like that about things in chemistry, but uh, I don't fully understand it because uh, a lot of quantum mechanics goes right over my head. But from what I do understand, it's just that the, so the orbitals themselves are not, they're not moving, they're not changing at all to accommodate the four bonds in methane, for example. But that is, the orbitals are fixed and that is what we know about them. But for some reason, they don't look like that. <laughs> I don't even know if what I'm saying makes sense. Um, it's just, I guess hybridization is just what we're using to come up with an explanation because we don't know why. <laughs> we don't know why. Man, that's upsetting. Although on a sort of a meta level of this being a science communication podcast, I do think the message that scientists often know just enough more than other people to be able to act like they know a lot more may be enlightening and or reassuring. I think it is. I really think it is because I'll frequently come across things and I'll ask people and their answer is, uh, which is valid. Yeah. And so when people say like, oh, you know so much about this, my answer is frequently, no, I do not. But thank you. Because we really don't. We don't know that much. Oh, dear. The world is, well, the universe really is is vast and full of confusing entities and Sometimes that's exciting, and sometimes it's extremely frustrating. It's so frustrating, but also exciting. It's true. And thus the central conflict of science, besides yeah. not paying people enough. That's um, another one. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. So what are you working on now? I am in the process of synthesizing a brand new molecule, which is very exciting. It's very large. It's got a molar weight of between 350 and 400 grams per mole, depending on the variant. So I'm in the process of synthesizing that right now. I have 16 derivatives of it. And so I'm trying to publish based on that. Um, just that, hey, it exists. And here's how I did it. It has a couple applications that I've been looking into, but like looking into those completely is not my field. So I will not be putting the energy into that. A lot of what I'm focusing on is like the synthetic method and purification, which is that is the worst part of this project. By far, it's the purification. It's just a very, very nonpolar compound. And so it does not like to separate from its impurities at all. I spent the better part of a year and a half trying to purify my compounds enough to get a pure spectrum, like pure enough to publish. Mm. There is a metaphor there, either for radical self-acceptance or toxic masculinity. Ooh, I like those. 
Yeah. So you can choose either one with regards to not wanting to get rid of your impurities, Ooh. as the case necessitates. <laughs> We're getting pretty deep here this morning. A lot of metaphors, you know. But listen, as a philosophy of science student, all I have are metaphors. So <laughs> don't tell my program director I said that. <laughs> Okay, so your current research, and you're starting a PhD next fall. Yes, I am, and I'm very excited for it. I will hopefully be focusing on phosphorus chemistry, like you had mentioned, um, and other historically difficult reactions. The one that I want to tackle is cyclopropanation, because those are very, very low yielding in like the 10%, and that's garbage for what we do as a synthetic lab. We need like 90% yields. So cyclopropanations, that's the one that I'm focusing on. Phosphorus chemistry seems to be a little bit nicer in that it reacts and is is stable. So thank you, phosphorus. Thank you, phosphorus. Thank you, phosphorus. <laughs> so why phosphorus then? Like why study phosphorus? I didn't have a particular interest in it when I first joined my lab, but uh, my lab is the, they created this catalyst. I don't remember the full name of it because I haven't had to use it yet, but it is a phosphorus catalyst and it's chiral. So um, that's like a big thing in our lab is, is chiral phosphorus chemistry. And my PI loves their catalyst, rightfully so. So we just have to focus on transformations using that. I'd, I'm finding this revelation that chemists also develop a really strong affection for the things that they work on in the same way that I think a lot of biologists do. Very charming. And a real message of humans are just humans all over the place. We love loving things. It's true. I love TLCs, the thin layer chromatography that we have to do in my lab. I love those little funky dudes. They're cool. That's But like phosphorus, it's not mine yet. We'll get there. Ugh. Kyrelli. <laughs> I I gripe about everything, but I just love it. I would like to throw that out there. Well, did we describe what it means for something to be chiral? No. So if a molecule is chiral, that means that it will interact with plane polarized light and rotate it in a specific direction. Uh, the direction and like the angle that it rotates it depends on a lot of factors, like the molecule itself. But it's so highly sought after in chemistry because of its applications. I, I don't know a lot. Like, I haven't taken biology since ninth grade, I'll be honest. I have quite a bit to say about that, actually. Oh, please do. Because we talk about chirality a lot in astrobiology. So chirality, in addition to doing the nifty trick with polarizing light, so chirality refers to whether or not a molecule can exist as a mirror image of itself, one that you can't superimpose on another. So a molecule that is perfectly symmetrical can't be chiral because a mirror image looks exactly the same. If you take a mirror in image of it and it looks different, you know, like your left hand and your right hand, you can't like superimpose them directly on top of each other, then it's chiral. If you have a bunch of molecules that are all chiral in the same direction, which is usually the case in biology. Pretty much everything we've run across uses left-handed amino acids or and right-handed sugars. So biology is very, very has a very, very strong chiral preference. M mentioned the um, polarizing light, which has actually been suggested as a potential biosignature for looking for light reflected off of planets and other solar systems. Because if your planet is covered in something that really likes chiral molecules, just say, you know, a huge sheet of algae, a lot of the light that reflects off that algae is going to get polarized in the direction of its chirality. So if you see a weirdly polarized light signal coming from the planet, then it could mean that there's life there. That's incredible. 
That I'm speechless. That's wonderful. Thank you. That's so cool. You're welcome. There was a paper out about it uh, just a few months ago. Spectropolarimetry of primitive phototrophs as global surface biosignatures. Uh, lead author is William B. Sparks. Came out in October. That's so exciting. That really gives me a lot of hope. <laughs> Carl said this is, is so hard. So your lab works a lot on chirality, and you're going to be working on... Did we actually get to finish talking about why phosphorus is interesting? Um, aside from my PI just liking it very much because of his catalyst, not particularly. So he likes it a lot because of his catalyst. I haven't done a lot of work with phosphorus chemistry, but like from what I've seen, it's very stable in its reactions. It's very like nice in its separation. It's very easy to characterize for a lot of the nuclei that you use um, there's a different NMR that you have to take. So there's like carbon NMR and there's hydrogen NMR, which are the most common ones. But uh, there's also fluorine and phosphorus NMR. And so like for phosphorus compounds, you just have to run the NMR long enough to get a however many phosphorus atoms are in there showing up as a signal. So that's very nice. They're really stable at room temperature. They're just, they're so cute and they're so nice to work with. <laughs> Or at least they seem like it. But my opinion of that might change in a couple months. So is the fact that they're nice to work with have... Is there any relationship to the properties that also make it really biologically relevant? Because like I know, for example, you can store a ton of energy in phosphorus bonds because that's what biology does with our good old friend ATP. You know, I just finished my biochemistry class and I'll be honest, I wasn't very good at it. So I can't tell you for sure. <laughs> hey, I got a C in biochem too. So I feel you. I also am getting a C in biochem. <laughs> oh, it's okay. It's over. Oh, yeah. Happy end of semester. Happy end of semester. To everyone. I don't have a cat because I have dogs, and that wouldn't work well for my dogs. But I wish, I wish I could have a cat. They're so cute. They're the best animals in the world. I have a bunch of reptiles. Love them very much, but they do not like me. Reptiles can be like that. Yeah, I've got choice words for them. I love them, though. We have a bearded dragon who is constantly judging us, I'm pretty sure. <gasps> Mine do, too. It's just the side glare that they give. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, I just have two cats, and right now I have a little cage full of cockroaches because we divvied up the live arthropods at the collection earlier this year when it seemed like nobody was going to be going into the building for months. I, as a person who has bugs in their house like frequently on purpose to feed lizards, I think the idea of having cockroaches in my house on purpose is more upsetting than crickets. Ugh. But good for you. <laughs> we were doing so well. Ugh, no, I love, I love cockroaches. We gotta bring you on. We gotta, well, I don't know how that would work, but we gotta bring everybody on who doesn't like cockroaches and talk to them and get them to love cockroaches. That's my mission. Because <laughs> they're great. They're very cute, depending on which ones you look at. A lot of them are beautiful. Because here's the thing. There are about... I always get it mixed up. Because now Blatodia, the order, includes termites. So the number of cockroaches and the number of Blatodia used to be the same number. And now they aren't. That's a whole thing. But I think it's about 4,000 species, described mm -hmm. species, 4,000 to 5,000 species of cockroaches. And only like a couple dozen are quote unquote pest species. Like almost all cockroaches in the world are just out there vibing and minding their own business. 
I think that's more upsetting to learn about. But this is only because of your ingrained prejudices that you think cockroaches are bad, but in fact, they're just out there vibing and eating detritus. You should be thanking cockroaches (laughs) for a beautiful world. They're just so expensive. Well, compared to crickets, yes. But compared to many pets, no. That's true. Love cockroaches. Anyway, so chemistry. (laughs) Fewer cockroaches are involved in chemistry. (laughs) Fewer? Although there's something there in like, I don't know. (laughs) I'm I'm so far removed from chemistry. But you know, like allergens, molecules. Molecules. Cockroaches are made of molecules, generally, yes. (laughs) Yes. And a little bit of love. That's... On my lab window, I have, okay, so the chemistry building at my university is very strange. It's um, built to look like a bomb shelter, which is fun, and it's got a bunch of holes in it. It's, I guess it won these awards in like the 60s for having perfect symmetry in these holes. But we also have, we have our windows, and then we have like an outer shell. So if you're looking out of a window in the building, you can see the inside of another wall because it's just this weird shell we have. But this is the perfect place for a lot of bugs to hang out. So on my lab windows, we used to have like eight hornet nests, like one in every corner. And I guess this doesn't really relate to anything, but I used to call them my lab partners and I like hated them because I just had to look at them all day. But then one day, like the university got rid of them and I was very sad because I was like, I don't. I can't come up with this on my own. I need them. I miss them. (laughs) I get it. As somebody who loves hornets, actually. Oh, do you? Yes. Uh Well, because hornets belong to a family in Hymenoptera called Vespidae and the Vespids, and they include all of the, most of the least popular wasps. So yellow jackets, paper wasps, hornets. The ones that people talk about when they like talk about hating wasps most of the time. Mm-hmm. But I love them because they are like somebody who enjoys minimalism and color blocking and aesthetic. <laughs> oh. They're an absolute dream. They're so beautiful. Just these clearly delineated blocks of color in wonderful patterns. My favorite is the bald-faced hornet, which is not a true hornet. Um, it's Dolica Vespula Maculata. It's black and white. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. That sounds like it would be pretty, actually. I'll send you a picture. Please. They're fantastic. So wasps. You should, do you have an entomology department at your university? Uh, I try to stay away from the biology department in general because their building (laughs) smells. So I'm not 100% sure. (laughs) Well, this is what I'm saying is that you should swap because entomologists would love that building to just see bugs around all the time. Right. Yes. That'd be a great time for everybody, I think. We need a new building. I'll see what we can do. Yeah, work it out. Right, so we talked about phosphorus, chirality, defending cockroaches' honor. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else in chemistry that you would like to communicate to the world? Please be careful if you're handling chemicals. Lab safety is very important. Always wear your goggles. They, uh, in all the high school classrooms they had this very cheesy poster it was basically like wear your goggles before you don't need them and it's just like you're gonna go blind if you don't wear your goggles carol never wore her goggles now she now she doesn't need them yes (laughs) we had that one in my college chem labs too i always thought that they were ridiculous but then um a couple weeks ago i was working and i accidentally got dichloromethane up my arm and i was like ah no we really have to make sure that we're really good about lab safety not that i was being unsafe it's just that like 
I've got very long arms, so I need very long sleeves. And like I had reached up and so my sleeve fell and then I got dichloromethane on my arm, which uh, if you've never gotten that on your arm before, burns pretty bad. Mm. Yeah. See, this is again what's nice about being in taxonomy and systematics because our lab protocols are very like just really chill. Like the worst thing that a termite is going to do to you is maybe gross you out a little bit. Oh, we have um, the worst thing in our lab, uh, I think, is either diethyl zinc or N-butyl lithium. And both of those are such strong bases that they're pyrophoric. And so, like, we have to take a safety course before we're even allowed to touch them because, like, they'll just catch on fire. <laughs> Spontaneously? Yeah. Wow. So they just, because they just, like, take the hydrogens out of the air. They, catch, they just catch on fire. And so, yeah, our lab protocol is very, very strict. <laughs> well, so for anybody who, like me, is a real chemistry dunce, why... How does, how do, basically what I'm asking is how does fire work? Oh, okay. So <laughs> fire is, it's, you're breaking bonds and releasing energy. So fire in general is like combustion reactions. You're breaking carbon, hydrogen bonds and oxygen. And like that just, it releases a lot of energy because, so the carbon hydrogen bonds are very stable. They are stable. They're very stable. So when they break, they release a lot of energy. So the final thing that we're doing with episodes now is asking guests to weigh in on a question that we have pondered ourselves and are now just collecting responses on. And so I will ask Tessa, do you think we should go for robot death or what were the other ones? Um, Is it gay if it's in space? Is, Um, Is it gay if it's in space? Yeah, I think those are our two major ones. Okay. Oh, and the apocalypse question. Oh, on the apocalypse. Okay, yeah. so you can choose, Emeraz, which of these three you would like. I'm interested. You're about to. Hmm. I'm interested in the gay in space question. Well, fantastic. Okay, so in um, I think this first came up in when we discussed the gayest episode of Star Trek: Deep Space Nine. Are you familiar with Deep Space Nine? I haven't watched Deep Space Nine, but I love the Next Generation. Um, so I'm okay, working. I'm getting. We'll there. watch Deep Space Nine. We'll bring you back on to watch your first Deep Space Nine. It'll be great. Ooh. I mean, if you want, if you want to come back, I, you know, oh, I don't yeah. want to be too forward. No, y'all are wonderful. I mean. uh, fantastic. We just invite everybody else to come back on to talk about Star Trek. Basically, I love um, Star Trek. Yes, so do we. Uh, okay, so it first came up in the gayest episode of Deep Space Nine, which is where Jadzia Dax ends. It's a very complicated situation, and I. Don't want to make you late to your tattoo appointment. So I won't get into all of it right now. But basically, the idea is she has the memories of when a part of her used to be a man and was married to a woman. And now a woman who has a part of that woman and a new person is there. And now they're both women. And so then the question is this really gay if they're reliving the relationship that they had when it was het, but now it's gay? And then sort of variations on that theme of basically do the category, it's kind of a two-pronged question of do the categories of sexuality that we sort ourselves into still hold when we, for instance, bring in aliens? And then also do these categories still hold in like a future where the particular context culturally that gave rise to them 
is no longer necessarily relevant. Well, okay, so like me as a person, I think I just kind of like to describe everything as gay. Like everything I do is gay by default because uh, I'm gay. So I don't know. That's a, I'm, I'm, I'm torn between what I feel and what is maybe a more reasonable answer. <laughs> you can focus on how you feel. I mean, we are interviewing you here. You're, you know, you're calling the shots. At this point in time, the only opinion that matters is yours. Oh, thank you. That's also how I approach things. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, I think in the spirit of being gay, then yes, it is. it is still gay. If aliens are involved, I don't know that aliens, like, I don't know what's up with them and, and gender or sexuality. So I'm just going to say it's probably like blanket gay. <laughs> Well, I do think this is an interesting new perspective that I don't think Tessa and I have considered of not just if the like relationship from an external point of view is gay, but things becoming gay as via Midas touch of if I am experiencing it, then by default, it is also gay. That is how I live through the world. So... <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think I'm gay, and so just everything I deal with is gay, and so... I mean, not to be too presumptuous as well, but I think this is a fairly common, like, non-binary point of view, often. Yeah, from everyone I've talked to. <laughs> yeah. This is hard to fit into lines cleanly, so we might as well go for all of them. Like, everything yeah. is gay. Whereas Tess and I are both very straightforwardly gay in a, in a sort of a more just like i am a man and i'm only intimate and tessa is a woman and she's a lesbian yep <laughs> we I don't love... quite have the universal gaying powers that um non-binary people uh, sometimes have oh thank you i would say that perhaps you can it's not it's not exclusive to us well things are you know things are very fluid what even is gender am i right boy do i wish i had an answer to that <laughs> none of us ever will it's true i think that is, I think, truly, that's all that we have time for. So this has been fantastic. You've been a great guest. If people want to find you online or find more about what you've worked on, where should they look? Uh, I have a Twitter and an Instagram, um, both of which have the same username. It's at Tenuissimus, which is T-E-N-U-I-S-S-I-M-U-S. -S -S. It's like a muscle in cats that I accidentally cut when I was dissecting them in high school. Oh, no. Well, they were dead already. So. Yeah, it's a very, very thin muscle <laughs> and doesn't do a lot from what I remember. Cats are great mysteries. They are. They're perfect. Chef's kiss. Love them. And I'm publishing soon at some point, and I'm definitely going to post about that. So that's where you'd be able to find my stuff. Thank you all very much for having me on. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. This has been great. We got to get you back on to watch Deep Space Nine. You can find me on Twitter at Cockroach Arles and Tessa. You can find me on Twitter at Spacermace, S-P-A-C-E-R-M-A-S-E. You can find the show on Twitter at ASABpod or at our website where we post transcripts of every episode, asabpodcast.com. And until next time, keep on sciencing. <laughs>